Welcome back to another segment of the Grassy Knoll. This is Visigoth. We're recording this show on February 24, 2005. This is part five of a multi-part series we've entitled The Magicians of Mutability. It features uh, both Phil and Paul Collins. Yes, they are brothers. They together co-authored The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship. And Paul has written The Hidden Face of Terror, which Philip edited. And we want to thank you very much, Paul, for coming back to us. And uh, welcome to the Grassy Knoll. I'm doing fine, Viz. In this fifth segment, I'm probably going to let uh, be a listener more than anything else. Um, this is, for the most part, for me, uncharted territory. Uh, and though I, um, I have the outline which you sent along to me, and I also have my own questions for sure, I'm going to let you run with it more or less. I think I'd also like to go back and touch upon some things we spoke about the last time you were on. And, uh, but for now, let's say that uh, you can, um, can you give us a theme for the topic you'll be talking about today. Well, we're going to talk about three very important Venetian characters. Uh, the first, Giamaria Artes. Uh, the second will be uh, Gaspero Contarini. And then the uh, third will be Paolo Sarpi. Uh, and uh, these three individuals and their, the, the contributions that they have made uh, to, to the conspiratorial tradition uh, were, are absolutely vital uh, to look at uh, because they're basic. When you're looking at the uh, Venetian oligarchy, you're looking at uh, at, the, at the face behind uh, today's elite and uh, and the the means, the methods, the ideology being followed by today's elites really finds its origins back back with these uh, with these uh, Venetian uh, individuals, and it's something that's hard for people to grasp because. When we think of Venice, we think of char charming waterways. We think of gondolas in the water and, and whatnot. Uh, we we just we get this charming scenic kind of picture in our minds, and it's really important for people to to uh, look below this facade and see some of the sinister things that that came out of uh, out of Venice and how it was a conveyor belt. For uh, for a lot of the occult ideas that originated in the mystery uh, religions, uh, a conveyor belt for those ideas into our modern day. Well, wasn't uh, Venice kind of a cutthroat place to begin with? Oh yes, oh yes. It was. I mean, uh, it, not just with uh, with the world outside of. Uh, I mean, uh, for instance, they worked with Turkey to bring about like this awful slavery. Uh, with, uh, but but not just outside of their own uh, country, but inside. But inside of Venice, we uh, we see this uh, kind of oligarchical factionalism where they would really fight with one another and 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 cut at one another's uh, throats. They uh, what I see it as is I see it as a a, a spirit. Uh, and this goes back once again to uh, my my uh, beliefs as a Christian, which I which I find more increasingly more and more unavoidable if you want to look at this and understand uh, this this thing uh, completely. Um, there there was a spirit of rebellion with those people going back to to Ham and to his son Canaan and to the curse that uh, Moses placed on on Canaan as a result of whatever it was that they did and uh, that spirit uh, continued and and never really went away it never abated did this uh, venetian mentality did it also necessarily necessarily seep into all the royals of europe um basically it did it it really where it where it hit the hardest where we see it the most was with was with the uh was was in britain it was in is with the with the english where uh where the uh the the Fran, where francesco uh zorzi spelled z o r z i if i'm pronouncing that wrong cuz somebody can uh, can let me know uh but uh when he went and became the advisor to henry the 8th and had a uh, had a considerable amount of influence on the, on Henry VIII and and basically began this Rosicrucian project out of the court of Henry VIII and uh, transformed that society into a a society where uh, Freemason Freemasonry and the ideas of Freemasonry gained dominance. 
I have a question for you if your answer is speculative um, and I understand. But I've come to the belief that all the royal families are awaiting the time they can return to their feudal monarchies. Um, what's your take on that? Well, I've always felt that the uh, that the republics that were supposedly set up over in Europe were were merely transitional. Uh, they, if you listen to the spinmeisters on the the major media networks, they they tried to make it sound like the elitist uh, mentality and the uh, the oligarchical mentality. Uh, kind of went the way of the dodo uh, right around the time of the 18th century with the introduction of ideas of je- of, of um, representative government of of the beginning of Jeffersonian dem- uh, democracy. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, if you look at at these royal families and, and look at the look at the way that they they act, the way they behave, the, the things that they have written. Uh, you see that that oligarchical mentality never never went away. You had the one royal. Um, I can't recall his name offhand, hand, but uh, but the boy over there dressing dressing like a uh, in in a in a Nazi uniform at at a, at a party. And I think that that I, I personally think. That wasn't just a poor taste. That wasn't a poor uh, choice on his part for for a costume. I think that the, that he was that that was a subconscious expression of of the authoritarian mentality that is inherent in 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 his uh, you know in, in not only with him but with with the rest of the elite. Uh, that was Harry. Yeah, that was Harry. Yeah, that was. That was Harry, and if you look at some of the things uh, that, uh, oh, for instance, uh, Prince Charles' attitude towards Diana when she began to uh, become kind of benevolent towards the common person, uh, you also see this mentality. So you know it's never gone away, and and it's 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 there. It's it's waiting for a resurgence and. It's quite possible that it's already experiencing a resurgence today when you consider the fact that uh, that uh, Britain's kind of tapped in with America on this imperialist expansion. Now let's get to the first personage on your list, uh, someone who is central to today's interview, and that would be Ortiz. Yes. Giamaria uh, uh, Ortiz is a very important character because we all know uh, who have studied uh, and researched into uh, into uh, elite criminality we all know the character of Thomas Malthus and we under- and we know about Malthusianism and we know exactly what that is and how it's this call for uh, depopulation and uh, and basically doing the uh, doing away with people that are so called inferiors uh, what most people don't know or realize is that Mal- Malthus uh, had as his influence Giamaria Art- Ortes. And one of the people that caught Malthus on this was, was Karl Marx. Karl Marx didn't like uh, uh, Malthus. Uh, he wasn't fond of him at all and called him a plagiarist and said that he was merely plagiarizing Giamaria Ortes. Giamaria Ortes uh, had passed on to Malthus this idea of carrying capacity. And carrying capacity is basically the idea that the Earth's ability to carry a population is finite and that it can only carry a, a, a population up to a certain point before there is widespread scarcity, uh, disease, just overall chaos. And... Uh, Malthus took this idea. He ran with it and said, uh, "And said, well, you know, given the fact that there's a finite carrying capacity that the Earth has, uh, we have to, you know, begin to basically kill people off." And and this this whole mentality continued today and has continued up to the modern day uh, with with the population control crowd and. Um, the problem is, is that now this ideational contagion, it, we're starting to reap 
the, the what what has been sown as a result of it. We're we're starting to uh, to see the effects of depopulation, um, uh, and if anybody uh, doubts that, I call people's attention to the Christian Science Monitor of October seventh, two thousand four. There's an article in there by David R. Francis, and. Um, I, I really urge the audience to get a copy of that particular Christian Science Monitor and to read it and to, uh, and to basically get an idea of what's being said with the article because, well, because whether, the, uh, whether fr- uh, the writer realizes it or appreciates it, um, what he's speaking about there is the consequence of, depopu- of the depopulation schemes that have come about uh, as a result of Malthus and in turn his his uh, influence, uh, Giamaria Ortez. Um, Sixty countries now, 60 uh, of the, the countries that are, uh, which is about a third of all the nations, now have a fertility rates that are below 2.1 children per woman. And uh, out of that, I believe that it's 43 of the nations uh, out of the 60 that are going to have smaller populations uh, by 2050. Uh, for those who would like to reference that article, could you give us that date again? Okay, that's the Christian Science Monitor, October 7th, 2004 edition. The article is by David R. Francis. And the uh, article is entitled, Now, Dangers of Population Implosion. You know what's interesting? Uh, In a way, they can continue with this chaos theory, which ultimately leads to a population reduction. However, at the same time, according to their fallacy, they still effect population reduction and selective breeding as replacement births fall off. That's that's correct. And they don't, even, even with this problem, even with this problem, certain uh, sections of the elite fully intend to continue with their depopulation schemes. They have no intentions of getting off of that uh, off of that route. And uh, for an example, I would like to point people's attentions towards a, a Council on Foreign Relations uh, study that came out in April 2001 that James A. Baker, who was the Secretary of State under the first Bush, uh, um, was he was integral to the writing of that of that document? Um, now people have to understand that the Council on Foreign Relations is a major elitist organization. It's a conduit for several elitist interests. But in that, but uh, but in that that uh, published study, uh, the 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 Council on Foreign Relations found that uh, scarcity as for as far as oil. And whatnot uh, was was going to be a was going to be a major problem in this in this century, uh, which leads us into the issue of of peak oil, something that I used to treat as a foregone conclusion. Uh, now, which I doubt, and I have heavy doubts about about the peakers and what and what the peakers have been saying. Uh, um, um, Colin Campbell who was and still is their guiding light, has made uh, several um, um, erroneous assertions throughout the years. He's, he's asserted several times that, that oil was going to peak, oil production was going to peak here, that it was going to peak there, and, and he's become basically like a chicken little. And uh, but the problem is, is that even if he is making erroneous statements and putting forward very flawed contentions, um, he still has the elite's ear. And the fact that he has the elite's ear means that that they are going to act on whatever it is that he's giving them. Uh, One of my favorite uh, authors, one of my favorite researchers of all time, who majorly influenced my work was the deceased uh, author um, Jim Keith. And in his book, which I considered to be a magnum opus, uh, uh, the, the case book on Alternative 3, he made a statement that really stuck with me. He said, it's, it, he said quote, uh, the smart money is on the end of the world, unquote. 
and what he meant by smart money he meant uh, he meant the uh, the the elite the you know the big cartel capitalist um, most of them uh, have placed stock in the idea of of some kind of cataclysmic event coming and i i believe that this probably comes out of their uh, out of the occult dimension to their belief system they they they've always had a ruling class religion that is different from the religions of the of the common people and there is as part of that ruling class religion uh, an eschatological component the idea that there is coming an end of all things and as a result of this eschatological component Several doomsday scientists catch their ears. Uh, one one uh, case in point would be uh, Paul, Paul Ehrlich, who has po- wrote about a population bomb and, and uh, the idea that that population is getting uh, too large and, and, and whatnot. Uh, most people don't understand that that he, that he actually gained the ear of, of Bush and a uh, GOP task force. Uh, and and so we know that the elite are listening to these doomsday scientists, and it's affecting profoundly the policies that they uh, that they enact uh, uh, concerning concerning you and I. I mean, they have to scare the people so terrifyingly, instill enough fear into people that you can sell this population reduction as a solution, and this is this is nothing but flat out murder. Uh, a strategy right from the pit of hell. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, it, some, uh, it, it, it might be a scare that they're pulling on the people. Uh, I, I believe that it started off as such. Um, I also believe, though, that the that that the elite suffer from several different psychological problems because they they practice this kind of social isolationism. Uh, they don't. They, when 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 a when a woman in an oligarchical uh, uh, family uh, needs needs the food, she doesn't she doesn't go to the grocery market and and uh, speak with other people. She doesn't you know basically servants are sent out to get what is needed and and, and bring it back. The only the only real social interaction that one has in that kind of environment is at the country clubs, is at the different elite, uh, I mean, elite uh, enclaves and, and, and meetings and, and social gatherings. So, they're, so they are very much out of touch with you and I, and they are very much way out of touch with reality. And I believe that this leads to psychological problems on their part, and those psychological problems actually lead to them believing a lot of the baloney that they sell you and I. I believe that there are several of them that really do honestly believe that some kind of uh, cataclysmic sort of environmental meltdown is on the way. One one individual uh, that I sh- would point to as a case in as a case in point would be Al Gore. Um, Al Gore seems to be very much a true believer of the things that he wrote in Earth in the Balance. He he seems to uh, hold these things, you know, with a with a religious fervor and that and and whether it's true or not it affects the way that they uh that they um treat us and we and the, with that council on foreign relations report that i was referring to um uh, the, the 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 so-called scarcity the so-called peak oil problem ultimately gets blamed on you and i by these individuals because they say in that report Quote, so we come to the report's central dilemma. The American people continue to demand plentiful and cheap energy without sacrifice or inconvenience, unquote. Well, what kind of sacrifice would the elite have in mind? Historically, the sacrifice that they have demanded of us is population. Going all the way back to the Illuminist Robespierre uh, of the uh, French Revolution, uh, when he had a depopulation scheme to drastically cut the amount of mouths to feed, uh, that led to 300,000 uh, 300, people being essentially slaughtered, 297,000 of which were the very people that the revolution was supposedly helping, which would be the lower and middle class people. 
uh, just as an aside, uh, because I don't want to digress too much, this is, after all, uh, your show, uh, but I have a listener that's in the balance on this peak oil thing, and I emailed him that if population reduction wasn't so inextricably tied to peak oil, I might be somewhat skeptical that, in fact, maybe peak oil exists. But also, uh, if it's running out, uh, if oil's running out, then those who run the oil cabal would have jumped to the next fuel so that they'd be ready to monopolize whatever that fuel source might be when we, the consumers, get there. But no, they're saying uh, there's no other source. Forget about solar. Forget about uh, wind-driven energy. Forget about hydrogen. That it's oil or nothing. And if it's oil or nothing, then they come without any reservation and saying the only solution is population reduction. They would uh, see, and that's one of the reasons that I have come to doubt it. You know, as I said when I started off studying the issue, I treated it as a for, as a foregone conclusion. I thought that it was true, and all. But uh, but now I have my doubts, and what you have just brought up is one of the reasons that I have my doubts. Because if they saw that there was going to be waning dominance when it comes to that resource, they would have hijacked one of the alternatives out there. That's right. And, and we have seen no hijacking of any of the alternatives. What we have seen is, is, is essentially a, 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 a repression of the alternatives. You might remember Pons and Fleischmann with their whole idea of cold fusion. Uh, when they were coming out with that idea, they were totally ridiculed by the United States establishment. Uh, they since went to France and received uh, funding from the Japanese and began to do their uh, their research o- over there. And, and they haven't been welcomed back with open arms by the elite. And, and so that's, that, that seems to suggest that this, that this scare is, 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 uh, is, is false. Now, the other thing is also, I lived through the oil scam of um, 1973. You know, I've recounted about how I watched the tankers line up, and we couldn't wonder why, why is there a shortage when we see, like, 11 tankers out in Newark Bay. But they were only holding off until a price hike was affected, and then they offloaded. And then we realized right then and there it was, it was a scam. But the thing is, I remembered that. And I'm saying if they did it to us once, they're going to do it to us again. Oh, yeah. So, I, so I, you know, I've never had anything more than a six-cylinder car. I mean, the two I have now are four. But... Um, you know, the other thing is, when the SUVs came out in the late 80s, I don't remember any people asking for them. I don't recall everybody going, gee, I really wish I had a gas-guzzling SUV. So what I'm saying is Ford and the boys and Rocky and the boys, I'm sure they talk to each other. And the thing is, if oil was running out, do you think Ford and the rest of them would be building cars, uh, uh, vehicles that are the greatest gas-guzzlers we've ever had? No, mm-mm, no, they wouldn't. They, as a matter of fact, a lot more plants would be uh, be closing their doors, and uh, and some of them have closed their doors, but that was merely to move them uh, across the border as right. a result of free trade, where they could get nice cheap labor with without uh, any kind of workers' movement uh, that would be interfering with any of their plants and all. So it's 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 as it's, as you said, it's it seems to be erroneous. It seems to be. Another one of these, uh, another one of these chicken little kind of situations that are propped up to to scare humanity into taking uh, some a, a very extreme measures. And, uh, and, and once again, I think that there are factions of the elite just because the elite are so psychologically messed up that actually have come to believe these catastrophic uh, uh, scenarios. Uh, but one way or another, it's affecting their policy towards you and I. And uh, population control is is uh, one of the things that they've offered up. And unfortunately, now we are reaping uh, huge consequences because of uh, population control. America, for instance, the, our uh, our uh, consequences from depopulation have been a humongous abortion holocaust. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roe v. Wade was the landmark decision of 1973, and from 73 to 97, 
according to family planning statistics, according to uh, journals such as the Morbidity and Mortality Journal, uh, 36.5 million abortions happened between those years of 73 to 97. By uh, by last year, by 2004, there was 43 million abortions since Roe v. Wade. And uh, that means that there are less people out there now generating the money that is needed for for uh, Social Security, for just the overall economic vitality of the nation. And um, while this has been going on, while while the depopulation through uh, through the abortion uh, meals and the abortion in- industry has been going on, uh, m- money has been taken out of the uh, Social Security fund. Tons of money. As a matter of fact, the Congressional Budget Office. Uh, has stated that $845 billion will have been taken out of the Social Security Fund by 2010. And uh, Bush, I believe, in 2002 took $42 billion out of the Federal Employees Retirement System. And all of that looting has created insolvency in the various retirement funds. And depopulation through abortion has made it so that there have not been enough new people generating the revenue to deal with the insolvency. I mean, insolvency. And uh, the boomers are not going to be. Many boomers are just not going to be able to retire. And Alan Greenspan has already come forward, dissuading uh, any plans for retirement. And that might have worked in some small measure to the advantage of the boomers. We know that continued exercise and continued activity later on in life uh, contributes to health and contributes to uh, to um, longevity when it's done in moderation. The problem is, is that by midlife, many of the boomers were already suffering ill health for a number of different reasons. Um, we, we know, for instance, that the, that, uh, the, that the boomers were forced into a, a, a rat race of sorts. In, in the uh, book uh, 1984, uh, one of the characters uh, that Orwell has in that book states, quote, uh, well, why don't we just qu- – what, what will happen if we quicken the tempo or the pace of life, unquote? And uh, and so the the, the the tempo has been quickened to such a to such a point as to generate tremendous amounts of stress. This was done primarily through the through the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve can inflate the money supply. When the money supply is inflated, the the uh, prices go up and there is a devaluation of the currency. The currency has less buying power, and so you have to spend more hours at work earning it. And and then uh, a nice little catch twenty two was added onto it uh, with the uh, with with the income tax, uh, which which increases the amount of taxes taken out of your income as your income increases. So let's say you make enough money to break even with the inflation, you've just stuck yourself into a higher income ta- income tax bracket, and and so you find yourself in this never ending race that basically uh, begins to add up. It begins to wear a person down, and uh, especially when, when uh, several people uh, have to get second jobs, when some of these jobs are in the service industry, which was a, which was a growth industry back during the Reagan and Bush, uh, Bush number one years. Uh, and service industry jobs, really, folks, were not, not made for for full grown adults they were they they're mostly for uh high school and college students that are trying to you know just just get a feel for the workplace and and learn the value of of making of making money after a while it's such a high stress and intense uh atmosphere that it's in that that it starts to wear down on the person and uh and and when when people start to feel illness coming on as a result of, of of stress or as a result of any other number of factors out there, uh, they are offered a uh, a host of of drugs as as the only possible solution 
to to their problems. If you go to a doctor, the doctor will not prescribe for you a homeopathic remedy. <laughs> he will not uh, offer you some kind of natural uh, kind of uh, remedy for your problem. Uh, you, you'll be offered something like Prilosec or or mm-hmm. uh, or uh, Celebrex or, or any number of other drugs, and these drugs actually can contribute further to ill health. Um, Celebrex has just been reported by the FDA to increase the uh, possibility of heart attack, and it's not being uh, taken off the market. And and this, and also the food that we eat, uh, because the food the foods out there nowadays have little or no nutrient value at all. They're either genetically uh, put together, or they're uh, planted in mineral deficient ground and. Uh, and most most people have to because of the fast pace have to live off of a fast food diet and the fatty uh mm-hmm. cooking oils but, but but remember too how much uh media has shaped the culture and the media obviously is the mouthpiece for corporations when they tell people day in and day out how stressed they are you find these people turning around and even if they're not saying geez i am stressed you know my wife and i look at them we go forget that why because you said so you know we we don't buy yeah, the mind op that's that's that TV has become over the last couple of decades. Well, we know we know that that suggestions, uh, suggestive comments, and the way that you think can actually affect your pH balance. Right, and it can move you away from being alkaline to being acid, acidic right. based in, in in your pH balance. And when that happens, you're you're in big trouble. And that's where many of the boomers find themselves today. Uh, they they just they. They're not in a position where they where they just can continue working and working, uh, and and so you know we we find ourselves in a in a in a very big pickle so to speak because uh, because the, while while I don't think that there's going to be complete bankruptcy of the system, I do believe that the 65 year old individual who has quit their job is going to go to the mailbox and will find their social security check there but when they open up the envelope they're going to say hey what's what's the deal this is a whole lot less than i was expecting and people are not going to see entirely everything that they should have had in the way of their investment into that fund because of of the looting that mm-hmm. has taken place of the fund and because uh, the depopulation through, uh, through through Planned Parenthood, through the abortion industry, has led to a grain of society. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we have an older uh, society now because there most a large contingent of the of, of the of the children of the younger people uh, were 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 wiped out before they were even born, uh-huh. and uh, I don't I don't know what you can expect the the uh, the look of America to be whether it will be a one big Venice Beach or a reverse version, an, in, an inverted version of lo, of the of that movie Logan's Run. Uh, yeah. But I do know that it's it's uh, created uh, several problems, and it all leads back to the this ideational contagion, this right. uh, this this uh, bad idea that was planted by one Venetian named Giamaria Ortez. Let me stop you right there because we haven't done any business and we want to do that for sure. Uh, first of all, you're listening to The Grassy Knoll on Visigothan with Paul Collins. This is our fifth part of a series entitled Magicians of Mutability. Now, Paul's written two books, one he co-authored with his brother, The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, and he's written The, the uh, Hidden Face of Evil. Now, um, that can be gotten on Amazon. Is that one of the uh, venues? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, both books, The Hidden Face of Terrorism and The Ascendancy. I'm sorry, I said evil. I'm sorry. Oh, that's, that's all right. That's all right. Both books can be purchased uh, by Amazon.com or BarnesandNoble.com. If you go to your local bookstore and put an order in there, they can get it out to you, and it'll be shipped to the bookstore and whatnot. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's that's two primary ways you can get it through. You can get the, the Ascendancy through iUniverse.com which is the letter I and then universe all, all together, all lowercase. And, the, and uh, the Hidden Face of Terrorism you can get through Author House, all one word, all lowercase, dot com. 
Right. And, uh, yeah, those, those are the areas that you can pick it up at. And just to clarify, because I screwed it up, it is the hidden face of terrorism. Yeah, that's, that's correct. Okay. Now, I just want to share something with you, and we go back to um, this uh, carrying capacity, which is a- absolutely at the uh, center of all this that we're going through now with peak oil and population reduction. Uh, but, you know, talking about what's going on today, even with physicians, Real quick, let me just tell you what happened. My wife has some esophageal discomfort, okay? Okay. Uh, we think maybe hiatal hernia. You know, we don't know. Acid reflux maybe, but she's not really got any burn. But So we go to the doctor. Actually, we just went there to see if we can get the prescription for a scope, should she need it. Sure. We tell, we tell the guy what's going on. He says right away, oh, acid reflux. I'll give you some antacids, and then you'll go on Nexium. And I go, Doc, what makes you think that she's, she's acid? I go, we're vegetarians. You know, don't drink coffee, don't drink soda. Maybe she's too alkaline. Isn't that a possibility? He says, well, yeah, 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 like 10% of the cases. So here's what we did. You know, it was her body, but I said to her, look, I'm gambling, and I hope you feel the same way, that maybe you're alkaline, and maybe what we ought to do is eat some foods that are acid-producing in a sense. Maybe your body's crying out that it has to do something. Exactly. Well, I'll tell you what. We we were very fortunate to have uh, Mennonite organic uh, farmers nearby. Mm -hmm. We got some dairy, organic dairy, and I believe we also got some organic beef. And not, you know, all of a sudden, a lot in a a short period of time, but we we phased it in. She also took the colloidal silver that we make and drank it because it's an antibacterial. And if she's got H. pylori, guess what? It's, it, it prospers better in an alkaline system. She was too alkaline. Well, what happened? Bang. Gone. She, we ne- she never took the antacids, never took the Nexium. But you know what? They threw medications at her right off from the beginning, and I said, well, how do we cure this thing? Is it bacteria? Why can't we go after it with an antibacterial? See, and I'll tell you something else that really burns me on that one. is because doctors take the Hippocratic Oath. What did Hippocrates uh. Hippocrates said, he said, let your food be your medicine, and your medicine be your food. Now, now Hippocrates was coming out of, a, out of a pagan culture that didn't have the Old Testament dietary rules that we, that we have in, in, in the scriptures, but even he was able to recognize that there are certain things that you should take into your body, and there are certain other things that you, that you should not. I, I don't understand why doctors cannot look around them and see what people have to eat today. That it's, that it's genetically made by big agribusinesses as opposed to a small-time farmer that puts tender love and care into his work. Uh, agribusinesses basically think that you can manufacture food like you manufacture an SUV. Uh, and uh, and uh, that, that uh, at the uh, different fast food chains that people basically live off of for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, dinner nowadays – there's trans fat in the cooking oils, mm-hmm. and that clogs up your your your, your arteries, mm-hmm. you know. And and none of these factors are factored in by these doctors because they have been taught to go on a drug-based medicine system. And the reason that it's drug-based goes back to uh, uh, goes back to the big oil cartels. So much of of, of the uh, pharmaceutical medicines and medications uh-huh. uh, come from coal tire derivatives. That's right. You know, so so you know, uh, if, if people, some people in 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 you know, good-hearted people uh, treat it like like well, you know, you get at a certain age, uh, sickness, illness, ill health, decrepitude. Is a foregone conclusion, and everything. They even that—that's even espoused in some in some nominal Christian churches as an idea. But the but the truth is is that if you if you take you know good enough care of yourself, that that you that the body can last for a long time. And I'm I'm not just talking seventy five to eighty years. I'm talking about uh, well into your hundreds, quite conceivably. (laughs) Well, Paul, I want to say, too, with the physicians, don't let them off the hook completely. Two things. One, all right, I understand that the pharmaceutical companies are writing also probably or funding the textbooks being written from which they study. Secondly, though, remember one thing. They like money. They want plenty of it. And guess what? When you're on homeopathy, you don't come back to the doctor. That's true. You know, that's what it is. There's no money in, in healthy people. That's true. So, I mean, in a sense, they really don't want to know it because they actually it's nice to keep seeing you out in the waiting room. Uh, exactly. 
and then the the and the uh, drug companies need to boost the sh- the share of the stockholders that have investment in that company and the only way they're going to do that is if they're if if right. people are taking their products let me share one quick anecdote with you sure if i can you'll like this cuz you hit it right on the head about what was what is at the base what is uh, uh from which pharmaceuticals spring uh john d rockefeller when he first got into oil believed i think he actually used it as medicinal and in my bathroom, I have an old um, advertisement. You know, it, it wasn't photographed. It was more or less painted. And it was from Rockefeller, Standard Oil. And what it was was it was a laxative called Nujol, N-U-J-O-L. And this is little girl, probably four years old at the most, embracing a doll and with Nujol right next to her in the doll's carriage. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, here he is wanting to medicate a four-year-old who might be a little constipated. It's like, why don't we hydrate the girl and give her a couple of foods that might, you know, break the logjam? But no, got to take New Joel at four years old. So, you know, I mean, you're right. Rockefeller, again, behind pharmaceuticals, behind petroleum. And isn't it interesting that those two industries are probably the most vital to, to, to uh, the globe? Exactly, exactly. And I believe that also behind the profit factor, of course they want to make a profit, mm-hmm. that there is another dimension, a dimension of control. You get enough of these substances into a person, you create a docile surf. Mm-hmm. And docility is the one number one thing that you need if you're going to uh, keep a, a managed population of surfs. You you can't have an uppity population that that uh, you could potentially bring revolt against you in some way or the, or another. So you get people working uh, in excess of fifty to sixty hour work weeks. They they they're they're dashed by the end of the, of, of a work day, and uh, get them onto these these different uh, prescription uh, medications. And they become like zombies. They don't have the energy to inquire into the bigger picture. Uh, they, they barely even really, really care. All that they have is enough energy to, uh, to go in one more day and, and make a profit for the masters, so, so to speak. Uh, moving on, if you want to, uh, and, um, do we want to talk about the character Sarpy as we yeah. look back at the Venetian oligarchy? Sure, sure. Let's let's talk about Paolo Sarpi. Paolo Sarpi is is recognized, and his name is spelled S A R P I. If somebody uh, if somebody uh, finds that I'm I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, they can go ahead and and, cor- and correct me on that. Um, he is seen and credited by many mainstream historians, one being uh, David Wooton, I believe, uh, with being the founder of empiricism. And empiricism basically holds that our sole repository of truth, of knowledge, comes from, from our senses. That we know what we know because, because of, uh, of, uh, of the ability to touch, to taste, to smell, to hear, to see. And um, he was basically, his, his ideas were basically the, the guiding light behind uh, the, um, the enlightenment. And the Enlightenment would, in turn, become the guiding light behind the uh, the, the French Revolution. But the important thing to realize about in, about empiricism is that it totally precludes anything outside of of what the of of, of, our, of our sense knowledge, and, and therefore such such ideas as as God, the angels. The, the the devil heaven and hell uh, human freedom human dignity because that is beyond our sensories uh, our sen- our sense sensory uh, our, sen- our senses um, they do not exist and and they are and they are totally written off and so we find the beginnings here of of scientism uh, because scientism. Is 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 based heavily in empiricism, and we also see uh, see the the whole idea of materialism, because materialism and empiricism go hand in hand, and that's that, that's very interesting because uh, Sarpi, of course, was a Venetian. The Venetians were merely Canaanite 
uh, Canaanite Phoenicians, and the Canaanites worshipped uh, Baal. And Baal was the embodiment of the materialistic idea. And so, and so what we have is the reintroduction of, of materialistic concepts without much in the way of a, uh, uh, of a mystical, uh, a, a mystical garment as it, as it had back when, uh, with the uh, Canaanite Baal worshippers. All right. And let me ask you this. This predates, as far as you know, this predates Freemasonry. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, it is interesting, and William T. Still, who is the author of uh, New World Order, Ancient Plants of the Secret Society, um, he stated that Freemasonry at one period, I guess maybe around the 18th century, had filtered back down into Italy for whatever reason I can't remember. But wasn't is, is it the P2 Lodge that is such, is such the, uh, uh, the infamous, if you will, Masonic Lodge? Well, P2 Lodge became so infamous because it literally became a parallel government over there. And they were about ready to, uh, to overthrow uh, the, the uh, democratically elected uh, government and, and basically uh, turn, turn the political infrastructure on, on its head. Well, I, I know that you had uh, asked me to read an article um that comes from let's see what was the website that that was from I guess it's um, it's off uh, EIR uh-huh. and it was uh, how the Venetians took over England and created Freemasonry. That's correct. So some would say that Freemasonry and I don't know if we touched upon this the last time you were on, but Freemasonry came out of um, the Templars' involvement with uh, the Middle East or Egypt or whatever, and they and they brought it back to um, to Europe. Um, do you find that necessarily tr- uh, true? Because I'm a little confused as to really is you know do we look at the Templars as, as implanting some of these, um, let's say questionable practices uh, of worship? Okay, there's two ways that we can look at this. We can see it as a seamless organizational procession, and we can see that 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 uh, that the, the, see things as the Templars. Uh, creating masonry as an outgrowth, or we can see uh, Freemasonry merely picking up and adopting the Templar ideas uh, as, as 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 part of their tradition, and thus claiming a lineage back to the Templars. Mm-hmm. We do know that temp- the Knights Templar, uh, uh, the Knights the Knights Templar ideas were implanted into uh, Freemasonry. What I basically believe is what Albert Pike seemed to be implying in his book, Morals and Dogma, that the Templars either merged with or uh, became known as the, as the Rosicrucians uh, and uh, began to shift Masonry away from being operative to speculative. And that project would have happened in part by, uh, through uh, the Venetian Zorzai that was in the court of Henry VIII. Well, no doubt the Templars did carry back the geometry they got from the culture of the Middle East that enabled the, the true Masons, b- builders, to do what they did in Europe, right? Because prior to that, they were dealing with what, Roman numerals or something? Yeah. You know, so, I mean, I, they did come back with some uh, worthwhile um, discoveries, sure. but they may have also been a bit tainted by... The, the Egyptian sun god worship, or I mean, was there Muslimism then? Was there Islam then? Um, I believe that the Islamic people were uh, were involved uh, through the assassins. Right. That that they had uh, become involved with and influenced by the assassins, and that the assassins gave them their political idea, while Gnosticism was, made up the large majority of their philosophic ideas. Well, some say, and I, I don't know, let me throw this out to you, uh, that the Templars, in essence, were closet Islamists. Hmm. That's, have, that, that's strange. I've, 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 never, uh, I've never heard that. Well, I'm thinking that they did, in fact, become infected with that particular religion or the occult or whatever. That uh-huh. They brought that back also. I guess it was not good for that to be known, in a sense, because the Templars were actually not commissioned by the church, but they originally we're protecting pilgrims who were Christians to go back to the Holy Lands, right? That's correct. So maybe it's not a good idea for the church to find out they're involved in that, but who knows, at that time, the church was probably also uh, was somewhat uh, stained. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 
and, and at this point, I mean, with the 10 minutes that we have left, I mean, it's a huge topic. Well, it has been treated by two other guests we've had, Eric John Phelps and uh, Charles D. Wilcox. But as we're talking about the church being tainted even then, we're looking at the 16th century and about the time of uh, the beginning of the Jesuits with Ignatius Loyola. That's, that's correct, and that brings us to our last individual, Gasparo Contarini. Contarini was uh, the personal protector of Ignatius Loyola, and what he did was he interceded on the part of Loyola and was able to convince the Pope to allow Loyola to form the Jesuit order. And I have uh, tremendous respect for uh, much of the research done by uh, Mr. Phelps, and, uh, I, and I believe that he certainly made a, a contribution to the, uh, to the body of work. But I largely believe the Jesuits not to be a Catholic project so much as it was a Venetian fifth column within the uh, within the Catholic mm-hmm. Church, because what the what the uh, Jesuits ended up giving us was what we know today as liberation theology. They mixed Marxism uh, with with the uh, tenets of of Catholicism, and um, and it's also interesting to see that that the uh, that the Jesuits uh, taught a a belief in theistic evolution. They tried to mix. Christianity with with evolution, so we see the implanting within the Christian world of the occult doctrine of becoming, which is all that evolution is. Evolution is is the is the occult doctrine of becoming uh, disseminated on the popular level as as Darwinism. Yeah, and I think Phelps would agree that certainly um, the Jesuit order one is of course not a spiritual order. No, and that too, it didn't arise in the Catholic Church whatsoever. You're right. In fact, Loyola had offered his services, I believe, and it had been turned down originally by the papacy. And later on, they did accept the Jesuits, uh, I guess, into the fold somewhat. Yes, yes. And the important thing to see is uh, Gasparo Contarini's involvement in that in 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 that um, overall plan. He we know that he was involved in the organization and the establishment, and and that he came to, he went to bat for for Loyola. And uh, the the uh, Jesuits have been a a bane on 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 society ever since ever since their finding uh, their their founding. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that certain founding fathers were not uh, too fond of them, and we know that they were involved. If you look at Latin American history, uh, we we see a history of violent revolutions, and and somehow these these uh, Jesuits mysteriously uh, appear in the you know. In, in the background stories of of those violent revolutions, so it's it's important not to see them so much as as a as a religious organization, uh, more so to see them as a political violent revolutionary or organization of sorts. Well, they aside from whatever Aboriginal slavery was going on in the Western Hemisphere, uh, as far as the European slavers, the Jesuits brought it to the Western Hemisphere, did they not? That's correct. I mean, That's I guess correct. through South America originally, and I, I even believe that they wanted to institute a slave state in Cuba right around the time of the Civil War. That's correct. They, they definitely had this whole, uh, this, this whole idea of, of, of a kind of a slavery kind of system uh, coming out of, uh, out of, of uh, Latin America. And uh, we know that, that, the, uh, the, that the Latin Americans... Uh, they don't. They don't have a high opinion of of the West in in general, they, in, in America in particular, but the West in in general, uh, the the European powers as well. And uh, I think that if they they were to do a little bit more uh, study into the undercurrents of history, they wouldn't be so uh, disgruntled with the overt. Uh, open uh, national governments as they would with some of these orders, such as uh, as the Jesuits and, and whatnot, they, and, and they wouldn't so much call Americans gringos as as they would uh, focus their attentions on on the uh, on organizations that are subversive, such as the Jesuits, and and place the blames for their ills on on these organi- on those organizations. Um, I want to remind people that uh, you're listening to the Grassy Knoll with Paul Collins. 
He is the author of two books, The Hidden Face of Terrorism, co-authored the book, The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship with his brother Philip. Uh, you can uh, take a look at those books. You can purchase them off Amazon.com and also IEUniverse.com. That, that latter URL is correct. Is that right? That, that, that's correct, yes. All right. Now, I'm going to ask you this last question. I'm going to let you ride out with it because we have about four minutes left. Okay. But since we can't really palpably grab on to Venetians, now we know it's a doctrine. Who do you yeah. think are the exponents, proponents of the Venetian mentality currently operating in uh, the world? I think that when you look at the British royals, you're looking basically at the continuation of of the whole uh, the whole uh, Venetian uh, idea. But there, are, but the ideational contagions that they that they uh, that they disseminated have spread far and wide to, to where you pick up pieces of it here, traces as a, of it there. Um, that's one of the problems when you're studying uh, studying uh, elite criminality and the conspiratorial element to elite criminality is that much of it, it comes down to a psychocognitive uh, assault. That's what it is. It's a, it's a psychocognitive assault, and uh, and most people don't like to look at that because psychocognitive assaults lack the uh, the physical evidence that American jurisprudence demands. Uh, there's no real murder scene. There's no uh, the, or a crime scene. There's no body. There's no there's no murder weapon. But it's still important for people to look at this because because uh, even if even if it doesn't uh, fit the uh, the framework that we're used to, uh, we have to begin to understand that these ideas have consequences, and we're beginning to reap the uh, reap uh, what the, the the these ideas have brought about. Um, you know, it struck me interesting uh, about what you said something before we uh, we gave that little promotion for you that um, we were considered the new world, the Western Hemisphere. That's right. Maybe maybe somewhat, and this might could be a bit parochial, uh, North America. But it seems to me that the New World Order has always been, has been founded and nurtured still in Europe. I would correct. I find that the American tradition diverged a great deal from the, uh, from the, old, from, from, from the old world tradition and uh, really moved away from a lot of the, 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 the pagan ideas that were very fatalistic and very usurious uh, towards uh, something that was fiercely idealistic and more influenced by, uh, by Christianity. It wasn't without its flaws, and, I, and I'll say that. And all. But, but what you're dealing with is, is an imperfect but better uh, philosophy, better, uh, better tenets, for, for not only America, but civilization in general to follow. You've been listening to Paul Collins in our fifth part of a multi-part series, Magicians of Mutability. Paul, I want to thank you very much for spending another hour with us. I don't know that we're done yet, but we'll go back to the drawing board, and, and uh, someday we'll bring this to a conclusion. Yeah, I got you, Viv. That's, that's fine with me. All right, great. Thanks again, and we'll be talking soon. Thank you, Viv. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.